Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us for worship at the Preston Road Church of Christ. We want to welcome our members. We want to welcome our guests, uh, any who might be joining us online for worship as well. We're really glad that you're all here on this wonderful March day. Uh, I'm pretty convinced that my kids might be lobbying for every week helping out in kids' journey if it means skipping the sermon. I don't know how that's going to go. I'll have to discuss that with them later. I wonder if they're the ringleaders on increasing that. Hey, before we get into the sermon, I want to share some uh, updates and news with you. We are bringing trays back. Our communion trays will... (laughs) We'll be phasing back in. I wondered if we might get a round of applause on that. So just let me share a few details with you. But first, let me be clear. We are going to keep the individually bagged options and the drop boxes at the back for those who might prefer that some weeks or every week. Those aren't going away. But in two weeks, we will begin phasing our tray passing back in. And we're doing that for several reasons. One, it provides just a little bit of an extra opportunity for fellowship and interaction with uh, the people who are sitting with you. They're important teaching moments for our kids, especially watching parents who might be putting checks in the trays and kids learning what it means to be generous and to uh, be bought into the, to the life of the church in that way. And number three, it opens back up an important opportunity for service uh, from our members, both men and women. And so we're excited to bring those back in a few weeks. So here's just what that'll look like, and know that we'll keep you updated each week and through emails and and, in worship service, just so you know what to expect uh, each day as we bring these back. In two weeks, on March 19th, we'll begin passing the friendship registries and the offering trays. Those come in first. And if you weren't here, like me, when we did friendship registries, those are just the books that sit at one end of the pew, and our members and guests both fill those out, pass them down, and then you pass them back. And that gives you an opportunity, if you don't know the names of some of the people sitting on your row, you can learn those. Uh, And we are going to ask everyone in the room to do that. The QR code will be there for prayer requests, but we're going to make it simple and all do the same thing in the room and pass those books uh, back and forth. And then our offering trays will also join that day uh, as we pass those uh, back down during that time. Then two weeks later, on April 2nd, we'll finish the phase-in with the bread and juice trays. And, of course, we've all learned in the past few years how important good sanitation and health practices are, so all those who are going to be preparing those are committed to best practices to make sure we are preparing communion in a healthy and sanitary way. We're going to need help to bring this back. So, like I said, this is a great opportunity for service. Uh, Gerald and Gail Turner are going to continue to lead that effort along with some others. If you are willing to help with the tray passing and other elements of communion, you can talk to them, you can talk to a staff member, or maybe the easiest way, if you will send an email to Fran at PrestonRoad.org, and she will compile a list, and we'll begin getting people lined up who are willing to help serve communion. So we're uh, glad to be bringing that back and hope that you will consider helping as we bring this moment back to our worship service. Would you join me in prayer? God, thank you for a day to be together, to sing, uh, to praise your name, to pray uh, for those of us who are here to study uh, your scripture in Bible class. And now as we consider uh, this lesson moment, as we turn our attention to your son Jesus, uh, give our minds clarity, help us to be more like him because we spend time learning about who he is. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
We're going to start a series today called Who is This Man? And each week we're going to look at a different title, different description of who Jesus is in order to get to know him better. Because those titles for us sometimes just show up uh, as uh, descriptions in worship, they're part of our devotions, but sometimes we've lost the fire of what they meant and what they would have meant to the people who heard them in the first century. So imagine for a minute I say to you, it's going to rain tomorrow. Well, factually, that just means that liquid precipitation will fall from the sky within 24 hours. But it means something different depending on who you are. So if I said it's going to rain tomorrow and I said it to a farmer whose crops were about to die, that's some great news. If I said it's going to rain tomorrow to a couple who's scheduled to be married outdoors... That's a different story. That's bad news. It carries a lot of meaning. And that's the same way with Jesus' titles. So in the first century, some people might have heard Lord, and they'd be led to worship. Others would have heard Lord, and they would think a threat to Caesar. Some would hear Son of God, and they'd bow down. Some would hear Son of God... And they would think, blasphemy. What makes the difference? Why would those things mean such different things to different people? And you may know that in the first century, there's just a storm brewing between the the Jewish people and the Roman Empire and all these different expectations of these different groups. And there's a lot of political unrest and a lot of tension. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he's coming in the middle of relationships fraught with strife. So many of the titles that we just use in our songs had a lot of charge to them when Jesus would say them or when others would say them about Jesus. And so we're going to spend our time looking at what happens when you use these words in the midst of such a difficult situation. Historian and writer Rick Perlstein has said, A fog of cross-cutting motives and narratives, a complexity that defies storybook simplicity. That is usually the way history happens. And so we're going to look at this complexity that defies our own storybook simplicity. And we're doing this for a few reasons. One, we want to understand the full meaning of Jesus' titles. We also want to deepen our worship. If we know the depth of those titles, I think our worship deepens because we know what we're saying and third if we're called to be like Jesus then the more we learn about him the better we can follow him as disciples so those are our our goals in this series if you're the kind of person who wonders what what I'm reading or you like to read along two books are proving really helpful to me as I write these lessons one is a book by Diana Butler Bass called Freeing Jesus that's a relatively new book And then the other is N.T. Wright's Simply Jesus. That's about 10 years old. And I'm using other resources as well, but those two are really helpful to me as I look at these different uh, titles for Jesus. So we're starting today talking about Jesus the Messiah. I want you to take a trip back with me to about the year A.D. 30. And we're going to find ourselves looking into a prison cell that's part of a palace complex in modern-day Jordan. 
And we join our prisoner there. Things are bad for him. The smells are terrible. The treatment's not great. The food might not be too bad compared to his typical diet of locusts and honey. Our friend John has found himself imprisoned, and he's found himself questioning the usefulness of his life at this point. He's invested his time and his energy and his reputation in the one whom he thinks is the Messiah, the one to come. He said he wasn't even worthy to tie this person's shoes. He baptized him. But a few years later, things are not looking like he thought they would. This mission should not have landed him in jail. Things are supposed to be different. And so John wonders if it's all been for nothing. And he sends his messengers to ask Jesus this question. It's the question that Ella read for us a minute ago. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? So we're left to wonder, who exactly does John think is the one to come? And why at this point is he unsure if it's Jesus? Well, if we wonder what John thinks the Messiah is supposed to be, let's talk about what Messiah, that word, means. It's a Hebrew word, and it literally means the anointed one. And it carries with it undertones of someone who is a savior or a deliverer, or a liberator. Now, Messiah is the Hebrew word. The Greek word is Christ. By the way, Christ is a title for Jesus. It's not his last name. And despite what you might hear in movies when someone is upset, his middle initial is definitely not H. But John would have expected the Messiah. That's what he's looking for. But it didn't always mean just the one. If we go back to the beginning of the Old Testament, the word Messiah gets used for lots of different kinds of people. If we read Leviticus, Messiah is used to talk about the priests. If we read the books of history like Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Messiah is used to talk about some of the kings. So when God's getting on to Samuel and saying, you're about to be replaced, he says there's going to be some priests who minister before God's anointed one that would be the king at that point in the book of isaiah the pagan king cyrus is called a messiah so it's not always about jesus and it's not always about the one but as things develop it does begin to take on that meaning and so when you get to the psalms There are some things about the Lord's anointed one, and it's not clear exactly the referent of that phrase. Are we talking about a current king or one who is to come? And so John has studied his scripture. He's been to Sabbath school. He knows the passages. And so he's been reading things both in what we would call the Old Testament and some other Hebrew writings... And this is what John would have been reading to form his idea of what a Messiah is supposed to be. He might have read Psalm 89, where God promises to establish David's line forever and make his throne firm through the generations. He might have read some outside of what we call the Old Testament, a book called the Psalms of Solomon, where God promises to 
give the Messiah strength that he may shatter unrighteous rulers and purge Jerusalem from Gentiles. Or a book called Second Baruch that says, When the time of the anointed one comes, he will call all nations. Some he'll spare and some he will kill. So to summarize, John is probably looking now for one person from the line of David who will purge the Gentiles and defeat the Romans and rebuke sinners and restore Jerusalem. That's what he thinks. And as he peers out from his prison cell and looks at what's happening around, he probably doesn't see a lot of this happening. Now, there have been people who called themselves the Messiah that showed up on the scene a little before and even a little after Jesus. And they were doing mixtures of this. In fact, every time the Roman Empire heard somebody show up claiming to be the Messiah, they had to get ready for an uprising. They didn't like that. But, but even the first century Jews, they didn't have uniform agreement on what a Messiah should look like. And you may know some of the names for these different sects of Jewish uh, belief. So the Pharisees, they had a, uh, an expectation. They would love to have a religious leader who would come purge the unrighteous. The Sadducees, well, they would have liked to have kind of a nobody who didn't threaten their power arrangement with the Roman Empire. The Zealots would love to have a warrior who would come and kill the oppressors. And the Essenes, they're the people who gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. They just kind of wanted a heavenly figure, they kind of expected two, who would lead an escapist movement. Just get us out of here. That's why you get Dead Sea Scrolls. They've got their own place and writing their own... Uh, scriptures on scrolls all of them wanted something to change between them and the roman empire but they had different ways of going about it some wanted to fight them some wanted to throw off the unrighteous so god would bless them again some wanted to just get out of there that's what they wanted different expectations for messiah so jesus shows up and he's not interested in meeting any of their definitions is he but it's very clear from our Bible that Jesus is the Messiah. All the writers tell us this. Matthew tells us this very clearly in the first chapter of his gospel where he uses this term four times. The very first verse of Matthew, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And then later on in verse 16, he says, it's Mary the mother of Jesus who's called the Messiah. He says in verse 17, there were 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. And then in verse 18, he says, now this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. So Matthew is very clear. If you're expecting the Messiah, Jesus is the one God has sent to deliver his people. But he's not going to go about it in the ways they might have wanted if Jesus is sent from God, what was he sent to do? What did he come here to do on his mission as the anointed one from God? Well, again, we turn to the gospel writers and even some of Jesus' words himself. In John chapter 3, right after our favorite verse 16, in verse 17, Jesus says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Later in chapter 10, he says, I've come that they may have life to the full. In Luke 19, he says, the Son of Man came to seek 
and save the lost. And then in perhaps the most famous articulation of what Jesus came to do, when he gets up in his hometown and reads the Isaiah scroll, he says this in Luke chapter 4. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so we go back to the question John the Baptist asked. Are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? You know how Jesus answers that question? I'll read it for us. How do you know Jesus is the Messiah? Well, the way Jesus says yes to that is to say people are being healed and restored. And that is your evidence that I am the Messiah. So if you're looking for someone to fight back against the Romans or threaten everybody who's a sinner, you're not going to get that. But if you want to know if I'm the Messiah, things are being restored. So I want to turn to us then and say, what does that mean for us? If we accept this rich definition of the Messiah that's maybe a little different than others would have thought, what does it mean if Jesus is the Messiah? Well, if we who are gathered here to worship him, if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, first, we have to accept his definition and not any other definition we want to put on him. So what is Jesus' definition? He says, I came to save the world, not condemn it. I came to give life, not take it. I came to save the lost, not purge them. And I came to proclaim freedom, not bondage. If we want to affirm that Jesus is the Messiah, then that's the definition we have to accept because that's who he says he is. And second, if Jesus is the Messiah, then we don't need another one. I think every generation searches for its own Messiah. Farland a minute ago mentioned the movie Jesus Revolution. I'm so thankful that Jim got us together for that and offered that opportunity for many of us to go see that. It helped me have a window into that period of time and to see what they were searching for. And of course, at that time, the way the movie portrays it, I wouldn't know. I wasn't alive. Some of you can tell me. Um, it looked like the Messiah they were looking for was in the person of Janis Joplin or Jerry Garcia. Somebody to, to finally make sense of the crazy world they were living in. Or sometimes it's, it's figures that draw people away into almost a cult-like mentality. So you have uh, Jim Jones... Or David Koresh, the Waco incident's getting a lot of attention now, some more books coming out about that, who drew people away and said, I have the real truth if you come and follow me. By the way, for our young people, if you ever hear people use the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid, this is where it came from. Unfortunately, that was a, a tragic incident. That's where it comes from. Just buying into something without a lot of critical thought. Uh, there are books that tell us about the history of this in our country, a book called American Messiahs, about a history of these people who've risen up at different times. I just got finished listening to a podcast series from the BBC called The New Gurus, and the belief behind that is that we are looking for almost messiahs in areas like productivity and wellness and cryptocurrency and all these things, there, there are those who rise to the top and get almost a, a cult-like following for their expertise, as though we look at them and say, you really have what it takes to save me. 
I'm going to follow you. You are, we wouldn't say it this way, you are my Messiah. I also have come to believe that many of us are looking for political messiahs. You know, the one to come in and take out the, the people we disagree with and, and really save the place if we just get the right person elected to the right position. I think we probably find some resonance in our good theologian friend Bono in the famous song from U2, because we would say this if we're honest. A confession that you broke the bonds and loosed the chains and you carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's John the Baptist. That's all of us as we're tempted to follow someone else, to say, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I know that you died for us, that you were sent from God, but have you heard of Bitcoin? Here's this new thing. This may be the thing that finally saves us. Yeah, Jesus, I know you told us to turn the other cheek and not to seek power, but you just don't understand how bad things are. We've got to have our real Savior who will come and take over and make things right. That's what we need in a Messiah. But if Jesus is the Messiah, then we don't, even, we don't need another one. We have to say, Jesus is enough. All we need. So I want to close with this scripture as we think about what it means to be like Jesus, our Messiah. If we're called to reflect the image of Christ, I think Paul tells us exactly what that would look like when he uses the word Messiah in Philippians chapter 2. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, that's Messiah, Jesus. So what does it look like to mirror our Messiah? Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So as we finish today, may we be the people who follow our Messiah Jesus in humility and in service. Let's be standing.